Hello and welcome to the MVR podcast number 17. I'm Rachel Alma. And I'm Peter Jacob. And today we are talking about We Are Peaceful. Just before we start, I know that the last recording I said uh, that it was number 15. I got all my numbers mixed up. So we are at number 17, uh, series one. <laughs> Just because we're getting old, I keep forgetting. And we've done this many now, Peter. Yeah. So we are peaceful. We are peaceful brings up uh, a multitude of thoughts and questions, I guess. I'm curious as to how we came to this title, as always, Peter. Okay, so you're passing passing it over to me. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I like that. You you can do the intros. Okay. Well, I guess uh, various threads came together. I think it, it, it's connected with the idea of not blaming and not shaming the child. Shaming is exclusionary. Mm-hmm. Shaming someone gives the message, we don't want to have anything to do with you because of how you are. Mm-hmm. In NVR, we would like parents, teachers, cares to take a very different position. We'd like them to take the position um you belong to us, and we don't do this. We do not act with violence in this family. Mm. We don't act aggressively. We are peaceful in this family, and you belong to this family, and that's why the violence has got to stop. Mm. And that's very different from saying, you have to stop being Mm -hmm. Mm violent. Very, very different, because it takes the social context that the child is in into account. We, how we respond to each other, towards you, is is an important part of that social context. And... If we are going to be peaceful, we have to look at that and and think of what that actually means. So if we have a situation in which, for example, parents shout a lot at the child, but possibly also at each other, and then they make an announcement to the child that the child's aggression must stop, they cannot credibly say, we are peaceful. So I guess it's that question of commitment. Can and are are they willing to? Can they or are they willing to make that commitment? And how does the NVR practitioner help parents who are not peaceful, and some are not in that way. How does the NVR practitioner help them to make that commitment to become peaceful? How how do they help them to see um, the necessity of that? 
So these these are sort of thoughts that have been going through my mind. I've just been talking a lot. Just uh, a penny for your thoughts. I'm just thinking uh, the, the amount of training in MVR that I've, I've delivered, that there's a common theme in practitioners receiving the training, say, when we get to the announcement stage where the parents get to write a letter uh, and make a pledge to the child that the practitioner feels uncertain if they're holding a particular family in mind, that the, the family can make that commitment. Let's just think about some systems and structures where families have and are um, have, have violence and aggression ingrained in their communication mm-hmm. with their families that they've only ever learned that when things aren't going well in order to get get you know inverted commas get control of a situation is by you know by shouting and becoming aggressive um that that's the only way that that, that a parent a family may understand i think introducing peace and peacefulness i think can be a really challenging concept for families I think it's um, for the practitioner. I think it can often be seen as weak by some families by by acting peacefully and not responding with aggression can yeah can be seen as weak. Yeah, I'm also thinking not just of the interaction between parent and child, which is important, but overall. So, for example. If I'm a father and I want to give my son the message, you can't act with aggression here because you belong to us and we are not an aggressive family, then it is essential that I stop (coughs) having shouting matches with my wife. The idea that we could somehow... NVR, the aggression out of the child, without bringing about that change in ourselves. Um, It's an illusion. I recall years ago, pulling up from work one day, and there were a couple of lads playing in the grass verge by my car as I parked, and they were playing with a stick. Two, two brothers, one small, one big, and the small one had a stick and they were just playing with it. And the older brother took the stick off the little brother and the immediate reaction from the little brother was to punch aggressively his elder brother to regain back his position of the stick holding. And that was the only solution that a little boy could come to. You know, we're talking five and seven-year-olds. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was his only only solution that he could result to. Mm-hmm. To get back the stick from my brother was to punch and cause harm mm-hmm. and to cause distress. And you know, I just witnessed it and, and went about my day. But it always left me thinking about boys and thinking about um, peace, how parents can encourage a peaceful interaction. Mm-hmm not resulting to aggression and violence towards each other's and to each other and and community that that's the only solution so if i'm a parent in a situation like that and there is in our particular 
family a high level of sort of angry, aggressive behavior, even if we may not be physically violent like our child, then our goals need to shift, don't they? The goal is no longer just, oh, we want to do something about Jimmy's violent behavior. The goal becomes, we want to become a peaceful family. And we want to become able to resolve conflict in the family in ways that are non-aggressive, that are actually cooperative. So the goal, I guess, for the NVR intervention becomes much wider. Pretty wide. I think that concept, that those goals, I think when a practitioner can spend time with a family to help explore that new preferred future and change within the family will take time. That, that you know, if, if I'm a mother of 35 years old and I've been parenting for five, six, seven years of those um, and perhaps I've grown up in an environment where shouting and, you know, cussing each other is is common practice. For the change to take place within myself and within my family, to to be a peaceful family, will take time. I often have have experienced in my practice parents saying, you know, I know I I shouldn't have done Rachel, but I shouted because I lost my rag or, you know, I know I shouldn't have the first words that that, that kind of um, uh, kind of it's almost a confession to me, you know. I know I shouldn't have done, and I I know I know I know better, but but I you know but I lost it and I shouted and um, and then perhaps we'll un- we'll talk about what that shouting brought about change and the, the longevity in change and parents feel quite shameful that they've almost breached their their pledge. To themselves to be peaceful, um, but but it's most definitely um, something that parents can work on um, and make small acts of commitment to. You know that they start somewhere. I mean that's a, a really important point I think that you've made, which is it's a process of becoming peaceful, mm. and it would not be helpful. If a parent says, oh, gosh, you know, I, I, I lost it, I, I shouted at my child, or as I was remember in one case, I hit my child. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would not be helpful for the practitioner to wade in at that point and blame the parents. Um, it's about supporting the parents in accepting their responsibility uh, and, and becoming much more able to deal with conflict constructively. And I, I'm just thinking of one father who, who hit his son when his son was had done something that was particularly egregious. You know, mm. it was really terrible what the son had done, yet the father had made a commitment not to respond to his son with aggression. He'd made a commitment in the announcement. He, you know, he wrote in the announcement, I have hit you in the past. I will not hit you again. Mm. 
Mm. And on this occasion, he'd hit his son very hard. He slapped him very hard in the face and left a mark. Mm. And so the father and I sat together and we talked about how does the father hold himself accountable mm. for not having lived up to his commitment on this occasion. And uh, I did something that, you know, we, we teach on the advanced level training in NVR, which is uh, I interviewed the imaginary future child. You know, if, if we imagine his son in a few weeks' time or a few months' time being much more able to communicate his distress rather than just flying into rage, what is it that his son might say? You know, and then I interviewed the father as if he's his son, you know. And what came out was he said, and dad has never apologized to me. Mm. Never said he's sorry. And so I said, so if, if your dad wanted to show that he really cares about you, are you saying that he would say he's sorry for the way he did? occasion mm. and the dad being his son said yes so then mm. we came out of this uh, exercise and the dad grinned and I said oh why are you grinning he said because I tell my son that he never says he's sorry Aww. and so the dad wrote an apology to the son he um he uh, disseminated it among all the supporters, telling the supporters that he'd hit his son. And the dad and I together uh, wrote a report to social services. And I then had another conversation with the social worker. And mm -hmm. she was satisfied that for now, the dad had taken the appropriate action. Mm -hmm. And the dad... Uh, showed his son the apology note and you know and so he, he wrote the apology down and he also showed the son that he'd disseminated this on his uh, whatsapp group well how powerful for the father to hold that position mm -hmm. and and we talk a lot about parents shaming and blaming children but also sometimes do we talk enough about parents shame when when they've stepped out of line, when they've acknowledged themselves that they've responded aggressively to their child's provocation and the shame and guilt they're feeling too, yeah. that they feel humiliated and angry at themselves for those behaviours um, and to make amends with themselves. And that's almost that when you were talking about that Peter, about that parent writing an apology and then sharing it with the network of support and also, you know, expressing that concern and distress to a social worker, how he's making amends with himself, making amends with the network and the child for a behaviour that he, he knew he was out of line. Um, that's really powerful. Well, and I experienced it as really powerful at the time. And I remember my feelings towards the father. And one, one feeling was respect. 
Um, respect for him because it takes courage to acknowledge what you've done in that way. And I guess another feeling was trust. I, I, I felt trust, my trust in the father grow, that he was serious about his commitment towards living a peaceful life. And I thought, mm -hmm. if my trust grows, just maybe his son's trust grows. Yeah, possibly. And how then that enriches that relationship. Yeah. 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 So, and, and I guess there are many, many um, challenges that can present themselves to parents in that way. And, and, and often when we talk to parents, we talk about the other kind of challenge, don't we? We, we talk about the challenges inherent in no longer giving in to unreasonable demands or uh, some parents who've experienced domestic violence who may act very submissively towards their child. You know, the challenge to, to stand up to the child's provocation and no longer acting submissively. Um, but this is a, and, and de-escalating with the child in a, in a moment of conflict, it's, it's one part of this particular challenge, but mm -hmm. I think it's much bigger than that. It's, it's a challenge to redefine in a certain way the entire family or you know, maybe if it's in school, the entire classroom, you know. I'm thinking about practitioner positioning of being nonviolent um, and how being authentic in, in our approach as well um, and how we're challenged to, to not escalate with, with others and to be authentic in, in our practice. I'm being challenged right now because I'm working from an office where there's a lot of outside noise going on. <laughs> yeah. And I want to go out there and say, shut up. But I'm not going to because that wouldn't be very authentic. But if anyone can hear the outside noise, that's why. And I apologise. <laughs> so so that, that raises an important question. I think you're raising an important question. The practitioner who is faced with a high level of aggression in a given family, who wants to both challenge parents and support them to bring those levels of aggression down. How does the practitioner do that in a way that she or he maintains a position of nonviolence? understanding nonviolence in a very wide sense. How, how does a practitioner do that? What, what is it when we are truly nonviolent in our position towards the parents? Uh, how, how, do we, how do we do that? How do we express that? I guess for each practitioner, it may differ or be varied. You know, I think there's something really valuable about asking a parent how they felt after they lost it and exploring with them those feelings. I think sharing some real life experiences of your own in terms of how 
you as a practitioner are challenged by perhaps your own family or work environment to to remain peaceful and non-violent. I think in it just the change can develop by unpicking certain scenarios. I think the practitioner can encourage the parent for their small efforts at the beginning. You know, I, I've worked with many parents who have really struggled of being just to start that process of being non-violent because, 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 because of many things and many reasons. But I'll, I'll encourage, you know, and invite that parent to say, I wonder if you could share with me in this week each time that you've resisted shouting. You know, I wonder what that would look like. And I wonder how you might share that with me in a text through the week, you know, and, and then when we have a face-to-face session or, you know, that we can build on that. So Thursday you sent me a text and you're really proud of yourself for not losing it with Johnny. How come? So yeah. you, you just, you've just answered that question in so many different ways. So one thing that I think I understood from what you were saying is as the practitioner, we take a non-judgmental position. We are not in the business of blaming the parents. We actually normalize some of the parents' experience by sharing when we have felt challenged in similar ways. That's one possibility. Without giving permission. So there's... You can you can you can um, normalize the parents' experience. You can express empathy and compassion without giving permission to do that. So we're not saying, "Yeah, it's okay to shout at your child," or, "Oh, yeah, well, never mind." You know, we all shout at our kids at some point. It's not that's we don't do that, but we empathize as much as we can and we normalize their response so we don't put ourselves above the client and then we look at with them at the exceptions to the problem when they have been able successfully to act with self-control and then afterwards with uh, emotional self-regulation and, and I think that's very, very important. I'm just thinking I worked with um, parents one time who were very concerned about their son's involvement in drug dealing, drug taking, and gang activity. And it turned out that the father uh, was a habitual cannabis user. Oh. Uh, cannabis every evening after dinner. And we discussed the fact that uh, he could not credibly challenge his son's drug-taking, drug-dealing gang affiliation as long as he himself um, is stoned every evening. Do as I do, do as I say. Yeah. (laughs) And he said, well, but that's not the same, he said, you know, he uses and he sells class A drugs. I said, no, it's not exactly the same. But 
what is the message that you're going to give him when you do something about your own habit? And that became a, an area for conversation and the father enrolled himself in a program because he really was hooked on cannabis. He, he felt he had to smoke cannabis every evening and sometimes it turned out, of course, there was a lot more in the morning as well and so on and so forth. And the ideas of, well, he doesn't know that I smoke cannabis because I, I go outside the house. I said, uh, yeah, <laughs> really? <laughs> So when, when the father en got enrolled in a drug program, things began to change because I think at that point, the father's or the parents' demands of the son became credible. Yeah, strong stuff. Making yeah. pledges. Making yeah. pledges and commitments to self. And, to have self-control. And I think the MVR practitioner's job, our job, is then to support the parents in making that commitment. Not just saying, oh, you've got to do this, but to really help them see this through. Not, not an easy challenge by any means. No, but doable. Doable. Should we just sort of, should we sort of pull together what it's about? Is there a yeah. way of pulling together what we've been discussing? Well, I think you you did that, didn't you? When you said, don't do as I do, do as I say. We need to help parents get to a place of saying, do as I do. And it's our job as the practitioner to help the parents do as they want their child to do also. Be the parent, be the best parent that I want to be. Um, I think that's, that's a lovely strong message sometimes for parents mm -hmm. to hold on to. Mm -hmm. What parent do you want to be? Mm -hmm. And then how can you... How can you achieve that? What would you need to put in place to be the best parent you want to be? Yeah. A driving little um, force, really. And then subsequently, I, as the practitioner, how can I help in that? Mm. Yeah. What efforts can I make? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, as always, if anyone would like uh, any more information, they can email at info at partnershipprojectsuk.com. Um, otherwise, we'll speak again in a fortnight. Take care. Bye-bye. And bye from me.